Welcome to the second episode of the C-Suite podcast that we're producing from the AI and Big Data Expo at the Rye here in Amsterdam, in partnership with Xfluency, the AI-driven translation and localization system. We're going to be interviewing the key speakers from this year's event to gain their insights into the latest trends and talking points in AI and Big Data. I'm your host, Graham Barrett. Let's hear what they've got to say. Okay, I'm here with uh, Shaheen Shekharami, Global Director of Data and Analytics at IKEA Retail. Shaheen, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me today. Well, let's start by getting your insights into maybe how IKEA works internally and your role within that. Well, IKEA as a company is, well, as you know, it's a really large company and it's a franchiser, franchisee type of company. And, uh, and essentially, I work for Inca Group, which is the retail angle of IKEA. And uh, Inca Group uh, essentially runs IKEA in 32 countries and uh, there are more than 370 stores across the world. And essentially, we are looking at a really, really large operations of basically running both in online and offline channels uh, for our customers. And within Inca Group, I work for Inca Digital, to be more specific, and within Inca Digital, I work for a customer domain, uh, which essentially looks at every interactions that we have with our customers, more importantly, uh, on IKEA.com and IKEA app, uh, on how can we help our customers to find our range a lot quicker and give them opportunities to explore our fantastic range and give them the opportunity to experience IKEA online. And tell me about IKEA Vision, what what does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the IKEA Vision is to create a better life for the many. Uh, That is something that actually, if you work for IKEA, you will see it every day and it's something that we breathe in and, uh, and, uh, and everyone basically takes inspiration from that. My inspiration of looking at we want to create a better life for the many uh, would be how can we create data capabilities and foundations that are scalable so we can offer those uh, IKEA products for the many and uh, and basically run our uh, operations and uh, our data analytics with as low as technical depth as possible. Excellent. And you're giving a presentation here at the AI and Big Data Expo, and that is around how AI and ML powers the customer experience and IKEA's online channels. Now, we all know how memorable experience it is going to shop at a physical IKEA. How do you replicate that online? Well, that's a really, really good question. And I think that is uh, one of our main challenges. Essentially, uh, really recently, IKEA celebrated its 80th birthday. Uh, so that means that 80 years that our colleagues and co-workers uh, have been working to perfect that really, really great IKEA experience, which is really memorable. When you, whenever you talk to someone, they all know what it feels like to be in an IKEA, what it feels like to shop there, what it feels like to have something from there. And, uh, and essentially is that we want to also rely on our traditional strengths here and see how can we make these traditional strengths in a more... Uh, make it available for our customers uh, online, different, depending on different online channels. And here we have really large responsibility because we have more than 4 billion people visiting our online channels every year. And many of our customers that come to the stores, which is roughly around 700 million customers every year visit our stores. And a lot of them start their journeys online before they even come to the stores. And that means that we need to make sure that to give them that very, very specific IKEA experience. So that is obviously not my job alone, and that is not something that I do <laughs> on myself. Uh, there is a really large 
number of people who work every day to, to create this uh, vision and where I work is how can we help our customers and with these very capabilities of recommendation more, more importantly uh, to help them to explore uh, that, uh, that IKEA uh, experience within those areas. And how do you devise the customer recommendations? Obviously when you're in store you can walk through the kitchen, the lounge and uh, you can see the various products on display that you can then buy. How do you do that online? Essentially, uh, how we divide our recommendation as a capability is uh, we have two types of recommendations. One is product recommendations. It's essentially your typical uh, recommendation that you have on any, uh, let's say, a retail website. You go on a website, you look at something, they tell you how to substitute it, how to, what other things, maybe if you're looking for uh, other accessories to buy with it. So that is basically uh, one of our angles, which we call product recommendation. And here we have uh, some sort of a four-stage recommender model, which uh, which basically is a state-of-the-art and a lot of other companies also use it to move on from recommendation algorithm to recommendation systems. And then we have a different recommendations as well, and that is content recommendation. And here is uh, we would love to recommend you contents to kind of sell you a vision of how our products will look like in your house or how you typically can put them together and how different things that we offer the whole thing. So we want to make sure that you have the same vision. So it's the same as when you uh, want to get inspired and shop something, you go through, let's say, uh, the whole IKEA maze that you, you that uh, that you you're enjoying it, but you're also spending hours in it. Uh, so it's basically we want to make sure that we give you that as well online, so you can get inspired and help you throughout your shopping journey. Yeah, I guess that's about shaping the customer experience, isn't it? Is, Correct. Is yeah. that what it's about? Inspiring people. Absolutely. It's yeah. very much about inspiring. As a matter of fact, this team in the past used to call it inspirational feed because. That was the only goal that it had, is to make sure that it inspires the customers. And today, it looks at the broader things. It's, uh, and, uh, and that is where uh, we want to also give advice and reassurance to our customers as well through the same type of uh, algorithms and feeds as well. Now, I mentioned at the start you're doing this presentation on AI and ML. So a subsequent question to that, how do you ensure that that is used in a fair and sustainable way within the IKEA group? Of course. So here we uh, we are on one hand uh, within IKEA. We have actually ethical AI teams that uh, that are very active uh, throughout AI active. You can also hear a lot about it today to make sure that uh, we have the right toolings, to write ways of working, and etc. To to make sure that we are uh, both compliant, but also one step ahead of the compliance is to actually be ethical because that is not necessarily because there is a law around it that we want to be compliant is also one of our uh, visions and one of our DNA part of it that we want to be that sustainable compliant company and, uh, and, and that's how we make sure through our different uh, scenarios within our company to that we are compliant and we are uh, ethical. Well, yeah, it sounds like you've got a big job in your hands yeah. so best of, of luck with that and thank Shaheen, you so much. Shakarami, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me, I appreciate it, <laughs> cheers. Okay, I'm here with Martin van den Outenaar. He is the head of data at the Royal Schiphol Group. Martin, nice to see you. Yes, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. No, thanks for stopping by. Now, you've given a presentation, which is uh, a great title, so I wanted to ask you about it. How Schiphol bridges the Spice Girl gap in their new data transformation strategy. What is the Spice Girl gap? Yeah, the Spice Girl gap is a bit uh, of, a, of a funny reference to the relationship I had with my dad, uh, who was a big Beatles fan back then. 
and I'm from the 90s, so I was a Spice Girl and Backstreet Boys fan. And one <laughs> of the things he told me is like, okay, but but is this music you're gonna ever listen to when you're older? Because the Beatles are, are great, the, the Rolling Stones are great, but how is it with the Spice Girls? And then I had to present in Cologne, Cologne like two years ago, and there was a 90s revival party. And this gift, gift gave me the insight that it is a manner of perspective on the things you are viewing now, if it makes sense to you or not. And this is exactly the same gap we are now trying to bridge with data. So with data, uh, people we try to help are mainly uh, in their 50s, especially at a company like Skipper, the Dutch Railways, where we have an older, uh, old, where we have older employees. And the people who are working on data are more 20, 30s. So this is the exact difference between the Spice Girls and the, and the Beatles. So me and my dad back then. And this is the, the the age gap we have to conquer when working with data. So yeah. that, that's what we try to, what we mean with the Spice Girls gap. Yeah, I love that. I might be more with your dad with the Beatles rather than the Spice Girls, but uh, I totally take your point. Okay, yeah. thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I start to like the Beatles better than the Spice Girls. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> so what were some of the key points you made during that presentation? I think it's, it's, it's this one, so so that we have this age difference and, and that it's important if you make a data product, that it only makes sense if it's used. And in order to make it use, so, so it's cool to make an awesome data product, a product that looks nice. We have this deep turnaround algorithm where a plane comes in and via image recognition we track if the plane is on time, etc., etc. But it only makes sense if there's some planner there, some guy working on it that improves its process with it. So it's about making this better decision. Okay. How challenging is it to implement data strategies at Royal Shipborne? What, what are some of the challenges you face? Uh, well, that you see that the data literacy is not as high everywhere. So that where uh, how we talk with data and how, for example, the C-suite or the directors at data talk, or the directors at Skip will talk about data, it's different. And that currently with the strategy, we really try to explain them how they should put data in the center of their organization. And that starts by the key decisions that they make. And as well as data, we're talking about AI here at this conference. What do you see as the most exciting use cases for AI within Royal Shipper? Well, I think so. So as I explained earlier, we have this AI image recognition case of the, the planes, the deep turnarounds, which we are actually selling to other airports as well, because it, it gives a lot of insight on the data. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we have, of course, this planning of the people. So like every airport we had, big troubles last year with the amount of people waiting in the line for three, four hours. We now implement the time slots where also a part of the presentation was about. And these time slots where people reserve the time slot when you are at the airport gives us possibilities to really steer when people should be there so that we don't get extreme peaks that we can't handle. And that are things that are really useful for us. Does AI present any potential security issues for airports? So, so I think we, we can separate those in two. So of course we have uh, the, the, the security of our platform, so can it, can it be threatened from the outside? Well, therefore we have most things on-premise, but also there's this risk of AI taking over, right? That, uh, like, like that you also hear the, the big people at Google talk about. For that, that, we have this strict strategy to always put the human in the lead. So never let the systems be on their own. Although we work towards an autonomous airport in 2050, we still have at the moment always a human making the final decision. So the, the, the AI gives the, the advice, the human makes the decision. Yeah, just one final question. You mentioned autonomous airports there. What do you mean by that? So one of the biggest challenges we have is that uh, the labor conditions we have are not the, are not the best there are. So we have this pollution, we have uh, hard conditions, uh, in baggage handling, etc., etc., and we try to solve that in the upcoming 
30 years by making most of those processes autonomous. So that we have self-driving buses, but we also have an autonomous baggage system where people are not involved anymore. So we give those people better jobs where they can really empower themselves and use their, their, their imagination and their, and their minds in, instead of getting polluted by an airport. So that, that's more the goal we have. No, that sounds like a brilliant goal and uh, best of luck with that. And yeah, Martin van den Outenaar, thanks for joining me here today. Sure. Okay, joining me now is Hannah Duchakova, who is Strategic Automation and AI Transformations at Deloitte. Hannah, lovely to see you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and you spoke on a panel yesterday, didn't you, about NLP, Natural Language Processing. Tell me what that is and what it does. So it's actually the technology that, that powers the, the chatbots, voicebots, etc. Without going to technical details, this is the main application, basically. And uh, yeah, well, mainly we were discussing the shift from how this technology was perceived maybe in the past. We see some clients, some, some executions causing some of the mistrust or not, not a perfect satisfaction with the results. But now with the uh, with, uh, advancement of the technology, it's changing and with Gen AI coming into the play, it's basically taking a completely new turn, a new uh, sort of applications in business. And can you give uh, some idea of how this works actually in practice, maybe a, a real life case study as it were? Yes, uh, I can. It's actually a really wonderful one because uh, this application was uh, um, started at the time of uh, the, the Ukrainian war starting. Uh, so the situation in Czech Republic when a lot of people were coming in and the refugees were kind of flooding Prague and there weren't enough volunteers to basically distribute the, the refugees to available accommodations. On the other side there were people in public offering their homes and, and, and rooms. So the, the team from Deloitte uh, used uh, the VoiceBot technology to actually connect the, the refugees, to collect the information from them, the demand basically, and the information from the public about the, 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 the offer or supply of the accommodation and basically processed it uh, in the meantime. But w what is important is that what was added on top of that was the automation which kind of uh, included the loop to constantly check on the availability and get the information to to uh, the Red Cross and the refugees. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating and it's brilliant to hear about AI as a, as a genuine force for good, isn't it? So, it is. Yeah. Um, there's a translation side to the technology as well, isn't there? Because obviously, you know, multiple languages uh, across Europe. So how does that side of things work? That was actually one of the key elements. Uh, the live translation uh, was applied because, of course, Prague is an uh, international city. Uh, not everybody speaks uh, Ukrainian, but we had also people from various countries, from writing backgrounds, uh, offering the accommodation. So the live translation made it actually very possible to connect people that wouldn't be able to connect otherwise. And we see this application now in, in like business environment really breaking the barriers and making optimizing even working with the resources in the let's say large contact centers and and, and these type of, of things yeah well that's I was going to ask you about the implications for the technology and where else it could go um, where do you think it could be deployed I mean aside from businesses let's come back to that in a second where, where else could it be deployed in similar kind of refugee crisis or yeah very much well uh, the the 
wonderful part of the technology recently that it's uh, affordable and scalable fast. So it's a, a perfect technology for, let's say, fast response uh, solutions. So a reaction to crises like, well, Turkey, Morocco recently, but even local uh, disasters like flooding, etc. But you know, COVID showed us the need for um, for mass, uh, so for addressing the mass audience and stuff. So this technology, especially in NGO in public sector, has uh, really wonderful use. Of course, in businesses as well. Yeah. Well, let's finish on the the business side of things then. So, how could an SME use this kind of technology? We see that this technology is, you know, for enterprises, it's quite easy to to get. They already are on on the path and basically maturing, but. From what I see, uh, small and medium-sized businesses are usually asking, how can we start our automation and AI journey? What is the first use case we could possibly think of? And especially because the affordability and scalability of uh, NLP solutions, voice bots, chatbots, etc., uh, it is really a, a really nice uh, piloting use case uh, to start with, even if you are low on budget or if you are just being careful. Yeah. Well, that is, it's great to hear about that. As I said, a force for good uh, with AI, but also really interesting to hear that the business implications as well. So, Anna Duchikova, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed. Thank you. I'm here now with Mark Steen, senior research scientist at TNO. Mark, lovely to see you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Now, you are giving a presentation called Ethics for People Who Work in Tech. Let's look at ChatGPT. So what are the ethical implications of ChatGPT in the tech industry? Yeah, there are several. And uh, what I do in the talk is I will look at ChatGPT through four different ethical perspectives. One highlights the pluses and minuses of such an application. One highlights the duties and rights. One highlights how such an application can have an influence on how we communicate with each other and one has to do with virtues that we can develop or that are corroded by such an application that said GTP. Now ethics for people who work in tech is also the name of a book you've written isn't it and you released that earlier this year so what was the motivation behind writing that book? Yes so we work a lot with clients and with partners and often they're uh, willing they have a motivation to include ethics in their projects, but they find it difficult. So the book really steps in there. It gives them a vocabulary, a structure, and even a workshop format and a canvas to, in a very practical manner, integrate ethics in their projects. Yeah, and you use actually some practical examples of, of how to implement these strategies, don't you? Could you share some of those with us? Yeah, so the core of the book and also of this canvas are, are these four ethical perspectives. And I can highlight these with examples. So the pluses and minuses, I have the example of self-driving cars. What the pluses for uh, the driver of such a car are different from the, the effects, the minuses sometimes for the pedestrians on the street. The uh, perspective of duty ethics that deals with duties and rights I illustrated with the example of surveillance cameras in a city. So on the one hand, the city has the obligation to protect its citizens, to promote safety. On the other hand, the citizens have a right to privacy. The third perspective is relational ethics, and there I give the example of IoT devices, smart speakers and the like, in the home, and how that influences how we relate to each other, communicate with each other. Fourth perspective is virtue ethics, and that I highlight, highlight with a social media app, and typically such an app is designed in such a way that it corrodes your ability, your virtue of self-control. And you can think of different designs for such an app that instead help you to cultivate self-control and other virtues like justice or honesty. OK, 
Okay, interesting stuff. And what do you see as the key ethical considerations for people who work in the tech industry? Themes that recur often are privacy, the use of data, another one is bias or equality or fairness or non-discrimination, and a third one is often uh, transparency or explainability or explicability. These often uh, are, are, are at play with algorithms and AI systems. And how does this play into your work at TNO then? Because I guess the, the book you've written is almost like a, a daily guide for how to go about your business. So how do you help your clients with, uh, with implementing these solutions? The, the easiest way is uh, to have a rather small, rather short, five or six people, one, two hours workshop that uh, that guides you through these four ethical perspectives, looking at the project you're currently working on. And uh, I've had very good experiences with that, with small project teams, also with larger project teams, also with recurring meetings. But the, my main message is you can start small and quickly. So we call it rapid ethical deliberation. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for, for taking us through that. Best of luck with your book. And Mark Steen, thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. Yeah, I'm here now with Yaramir Jawa, CTO of Exfluency. I was just wondering if we could start by um, looking at Exfluency and maybe the technology that underpins the platform. So Exfluency is a tech company providing hybrid intelligence solutions for multilingual communication. By harnessing AI and blockchain technology, we provide tech-savvy companies with access to modern language tools. So our goal is to make linguistic assets as precious as any other corporate asset. And uh, in order to get there, of course, it took several uh, iterations. So underneath technology is not like uh, 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 all of these ChatGPTs of this world just appeared uh, suddenly November last year. It's been several iterations till we got to where we are right now. So, uh, for example, 10 years ago I was a co-founder and also I had a couple of patents in the field of machine learning and semantic processing. So, again, that's the evolution of what was happening before that. Even with something that you are more uh, used to, like Facebook, for example, smartphones, there, was, there were plenty of Facebooks before Facebook. There were also plenty of phones before iPhone in 2007 or was it 2008. So, of course, uh, it was uh, a lot of iterations before uh, the world became what it is right now. So, yeah, you talk about different iterations. So, what was the technology like at the start compared to, to what it is now? Of course, uh, with now, uh, there's much more processing power. There are, we've got GPUs, uh, we've got algorithms like attention, like transformers that can uh, give you really, really beautiful results. But let's not forget that all those LLMs would give you not the answer on your question. Actually, it would give you the most probable next word. And that's also uh, 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 the, the maximum of the four. So what we are proposing Exfluency is to tie these models to your data. So actually you would be able to speak with your multilingual documents. Instead of getting generic answer, you would get a specific answer to your question. It would be the source of the true rather than just random, but also uh, a convenient for the engine uh, uh, word next in the, in the sentence. So that is all possible because of thousands, 
millions of engineering hours and also patents and also a lot of IPs that produce behind the stages. I'm also interested in your own kind of personal history and the, the technology, the history of semantics and how that is kind of interwoven with the history of ex-fluency. Can you give us a little bit of that background? Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, for the last 20 years I've been doing stuff around hardware and software and uh, also machine learning and what we called it then uh, semantic networks, semantic search and semantic text processing. I happen to be co-founder and also co-author of uh, several patents, a couple of companies around uh, semantic processing. One of the companies I sold in Silicon Valley back then in 2000, I think it was 2012, something like that. Uh, we did an exit to a large social network then, uh, 300 million users, and that allowed me to, to build up the scale. And then uh, that led to even more um, interesting solution in the field, uh, of course, when the processing power was uh, capable of doing the uh, as much as I could demand out of the algorithm. So long story short is uh, the evolution and not uh, out of the blue technology and uh, there is a lot of uh, engineering and there is a lot of uh, a brain behind the stages. So I'm, I'm so happy to be able to work with smart guys much smarter than I am <laughs> to develop such algorithms and solutions. So that's the history. Let's project forward. What are the future use cases of AI that you're most excited about? Yes, I'm a huge fan of uh, sci-fi literature. And, uh, for example, Scott Orson Card uh, had, his, had his book, uh, Ender's Game. So I'm all, I was, it was my dream, and I, I would never think that that might be actually realized while I'm still alive, <laughs> to have this AI assistance, uh, assistant somehow built in in the book, if I remember correctly, it was uh, a piece of uh, the hardware in your ear that was processing uh, uh, those, those events uh, and triggering some actions. <laughs> so right now, with a smartphone, it is already available with somewhat personalized assistance, again, client-specific. It, 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 it will be your assistant rather than a generic assistant. <laughs> it is even more possible now with AI, with um, personalized data, personalized text and events processing. So yeah, I'm, I'm really look forward to seeing it in the future. Thank you very much for that glimpse into the future. And Yaramir Jawa, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Graham. Okay, joining me now is Timia Toltzeki. She is head of data analytics and platforms across eight different countries in Europe uh, at Böhringer Ingelheim. Timia, it's really nice to see you here today. Very nice to see you here and thanks for the invitation and it's a lovely day to be here in this event. Yeah, no, it's great. And you're speaking, aren't you, on a couple of panels this afternoon. There was one I was really interested in about real-time responses through real-time intelligence. So. What are you hoping to uh, discuss in that session? This panel is gathering uh, a lot of speakers coming from different industries. And uh, the bottom line is we are all facing with the same challenges of real-time analytics and real-time business intelligence. What are the foundations and what are the processes and systems we have to have in place to move along? And it's not just uh, data warehouse, data cleaning, data collection. It's also the human part of it. Okay. So what is the human part of it? Of it. Data literacy. <laughs> okay. Uh, there's a, especially in my industry where I, uh, where I work, I feel the hugest challenge is, is, is data literacy currently okay. from the human side. And we also, we are always lacking of FTEs, we are always lacking of people. Mm -hmm. And how do you approach data analytics at Boehringer? Uh, 
I have my own way, which is a bit of un unorthodox, other than the traditional way. The traditional way would be we have to have everything in place, good data collection, data quality, a kind of feedback system, and having uh, uh, starting with cloud computing, going forward to uh, advanced analytics. Uh, this is the, the, the by the book, yeah. and by not the book is what is my flavor to it is the human side and also the community uh, cre creating a, uh, a well uh, put together community uh, supporting my colleagues and elevating their data literacy. Yeah, yeah. So how, what, does, what does that actually mean in practice? What, what are you trying to give to your staff? Since September I'm also a global enabler of Snowflake and Tableau okay. in Birmingham. Uh, therefore, I'm helping and created a community and every two three weeks we have uh, sessions. How to uh, bring day level up, the data literacy in data warehousing, just, basic, just SQL coding and also in Tableau and reporting. Yeah, and that was just announced this year, was it, that you're one of the, the ambassadors of that program? Yes, I'm yeah. very pleased to say that uh, I've been uh, selected as a Tableau ambassador. Oh, congratulations. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, what are some of the, the challenges you face then? Because that sounds like you've got a huge workload, to be honest, a lot on your plate. Uh, there is a lot on my plate. One of the main challenges uh, from the human side is data literacy, that as I mentioned before. Yeah. Uh, that in there is a wide range of knowledge within these eight countries. One of my countries can actually code, even in Python and SQL. The other country doesn't know what is uh, SQL syntax is about. So there's this huge wide, and, and I'm trying to bring everybody on the same level. Uh, and the other challenge is, is the, because we are a traditional uh, old school company, uh, pharma companies are very late in digital transformation. So finally, this year we are about to welcome 2023, uh, the 21st century in Wöringen Ingelheim as well with cloud computing. So the main struggle is here is uh, ingesting all the legacy systems. Just to finish up here, what, what are you most looking forward to over the, the coming months? What, what are you working on at the moment? I have a deadline until next year right. <laughs> to finish our biggest project that was in Wöringen so far in, in data analytics is moving data warehouse. So we're moving Prem to cloud, and we are using Snowflake and, and Tableau combination. And I hope that for next year, summertime, we will, be, we will be already having pretty nice reporting and dashboard in place with clean data and well-working data, data uh, margins. But that's, that's kind of an ideal word. I know there is a, a lot to happen still. Yeah, well, that's the dream. Sounds, that's sounds the good. Dream. Yeah. Well, best of luck with that. Best of luck with your sessions here at the conference. Uh, Timir Tolzeki, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm here with Damien Bokanovic, machine learning engineer at Neural Magic. Nice to see you, Damien. Nice to see you too. You've just given a presentation here at the conference, haven't you? It was all about yeah. edge AI. Can you start by giving us maybe your definition of edge AI and how it works for organizations? Yes, so edge AI basically means that we run compute where the data is being generated. So for example, normally when you use ChatGPT, you type in um, a prompt is being sent off to like a remote um, server, and then the compute happens on the server. But for example, if you're taking a picture with your iPhone, and you have those like a nice algorithms which make your um, image nicer before you take the picture, this happens on the device, and therefore 
closer to you as a user, and this will be defined as Edge AI. So Edge AI is really helpful when you want to decrease your latency, decrease your costs, and increase accessibility. For example, if you want to run um, computer vision solution on a robot, it doesn't make sense for data to like go to some kind of a server room and back. Everything should happen on the device, on the robot, right? To reduce the latency and to make sure that the robot can still see if you don't have um, Wi-Fi access. And how was the presentation? What were the, some of the key points you made during it? Yeah, it was really good. Um, the main key point is um, that basically there are a lot of businesses that struggle with deploying AI solutions because they need to go through this whole process of um, getting hardware ready. And by default, what many companies do is they try to, de to deploy on GPUs. And it's, it's difficult, you know, like the companies should not care about building GPU clusters, they should not care about the specialized um, hardware accelerators, they should only care about their core business. And this is what we as Neural Magic um, enable them to, we basically, um, we, we abstract out all the hardware considerations and we allow them to run their models seamlessly on commodity hardware, which is CPUs. Readily available, always at our fingertips. And tell me a little bit about Neural Magic um, for our listeners who, who maybe don't know what you guys do. What kind of problems are you trying to solve for your clients? Yes, so most of the clients, they want to focus on their core businesses, like banks, they want to do banking, manufacturers, they want to do manufacturing. They, want, they do not want to care about um, you know, setting up their hardware accelerators. So what we do as Neural Magic, we abstract out all the hardware problems for them, and we enable them to run the state-of-the-art deep learning models on commodity hardware anywhere what they want. So they can run on CPUs at any location, be it um, edge device, be it cloud, or their private data center. So how does this work in practice? Maybe you've got some live examples you can share of the clients you're working with at the moment? Yeah, so we are working with several um, customers, including um, big American retailer, as well as the, one of the leading auto manufacturer. Um, but recently we've been working with the startup from the UK called Uhura. And what, uh, what, what do they do and what specifically do you help them with? Yeah, so they deal with the automated um, document processing and how Neural Magic helped them is to enable their customers to run the deep learning solutions on the commodity hardware. So right now those customers can focus on their core businesses and not worry about the specialized hardware. As a result, they can use any commodity hardware and um, be more robust, be more flexible, and not be restrained to one particular type of hardware, but be able to use any commodity um, hardware that they wish to use. And what does the future hold for Neural Magic? What are you excited about in the coming months and years? So right now we are doubling down on two things. The first one is to enable our customers to deploy on um, compact edge devices. The second thing is to be able to deploy large language models, which are obviously the hottest thing right now. They are very useful and they are problematic to deploy on, on their um, um, edge devices because they are so big. But we already know that we can compress those models by you know, 2x, 4x, maybe even 8x and be able to deploy those models on those really tiny and compact devices. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be, you know, we'll be looking out for how that develops and uh, all the very best with it. Yeah. Damien Bokanovich, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed these conversations from the 2023 AI and Big Data Expo. Thanks to all my guests for their time and insights and to Xfluency for hosting us on their stand and partnering with the podcast. If you've enjoyed these interviews and you'd like to contribute to the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. 
You can find us on LinkedIn and our other social media channels. All of the links can be found at csuitepodcast.com, where you can also catch up with our previous shows and follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a positive rating and review. Finally, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website, or you can find me, Graham Barrett, and the C-Suite podcast on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening, and goodbye.